Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Mazel Tov. The uh, contraption you see at the front here, uh, I know it actually looks like a handicap-accessible uh, ramp, but actually we're a, uh, a total mind and body facility here. We'll be doing an obstacle course after services. It's obligatory. It's not a choice. And then you'll get your chicken fingers. The uh, comedian Stephen Wright is one of my favorites. Has a routine where he talks about trying to figure the ways of, rather than having his life fight with technology, he could bring them together. And so this is what he says. He said that he's giving up social media for a year. And he's trying to make friends outside of Facebook while applying the same principles of Facebook. So every day he says... I walk down the street and I tell passengers, uh, passerbys, what I've eaten, how I feel, what I did the night before, and what I'm going to do tomorrow. And then I send them pictures of my family, my dog, and my gardening. I also listen on their conversations, and I tell them that I love them. And it works, he says. I already have three people following me, two police officers and a psychiatrist. Now, in much smaller ways, I'm trying to do the same thing. Just the other day, I was fiddling around with our Apple TV, trying to get it to run a slideshow from our iCloud photo stream. Don't think I wasn't trying to impress you just now. Apple TV, cloud stream. Now, after some trial and error, I accidentally got it all to work. I say accidentally because if I had to do it a second time, I don't think I could do it. The pictures came streaming in, and in and one of them grabbed the attention of our kids to the point that they asked me to reverse it so they could see it again. And I said, reverse? You've got to be kidding. Anyways, I did manage to get the picture back, and what do you think was an image that was so arresting, so positively shocking, that they wanted to see it over and over again. It was a picture of me without glasses. The thing is, I've been wearing glasses for much of my life. I was diagnosed nearsighted at the age of six or seven, and from the age nine and on, apart from a few stints with contact lenses, it's been glasses and frames ever since. Now, thing is, I don't know any different. When I wake up in the morning, everything is blurry, and then I reach for my glasses. But there are indeed moments of panic where you feel around for them and you can't find them. Or there are moments in my life where I've lost or broken them have left me feel crippled because I can't really see without them. Now this story comes to mind because a congregant dropped off a book about the remarkable story of a man named Isaac Litsky, child actor, Harvard University mathematics graduate at the age of 19, a Harvard Law School graduate, a law clerk to two U.S. Supreme Court justices before heading out into private enterprise and making himself off very well. I know he's a schlepper. But he's also blind. Diagnosed at the age of 13 with a disease called retinitis pigmentosa, Isaac Litsky asked a question which is a play on a beautiful thought by Helen Keller. Litsky asks... Do you think sight and vision are the same things? 
which is to say that lots of people have sight, thank God, but lots of people lack vision. Litsky's amazing success has been built on having a vision, and he is convinced that losing his sight allowed him to see things that he had never been able to see before. It is, as we see with the artist Stega, that his best paintings only came when he went blind. So this weekend, after Shabbat, why don't you sit down with your kids and watch his TEDx video? It'll be some of the best 20 minutes you'll spend this week after listening to me. Which is to say that just because you see something in no way suggests that you understand it. We like to think that someone who looks successful is successful, that someone who looks attractive is actually an attractive person. Our challenge is to understand that an appearance is just and only that. It is the first glance, the opening of a book, the introduction. It is not a definition. Now, some of you know, uh, last month at the invitation of the German government, I went to Germany. And next week, I'll be speaking more about it. We'll also be very honored to have the German Consulate General here in attendance at the congregation. But I wanted to share one story with you. The trip brought us to Munich and then Berlin. Munich was the first because the itinerary had us touring the city and its remarkable and ancient Jewish history. Jews, in one way or another, have been living in Bavaria for more than 1,200 years. It's also a history that is painful and oftentimes bloody and murderous, too. Munich, the city of Munich, is the center of Bavaria, and not more than a 40-minute drive outside of the city into the heartland of Bavaria is the concentration camp named Dachau. Not as well known as Treblinka or Auschwitz or Birkenau or Majdanek, Dachau still stands at a critical place in the story of the destruction of Europe's Jews and how humanity loses its humanity. And that is because Dachau was one of the very first and only death camps built actually on German soil. The Nazis were very careful to export their death machinery outside of their borders into Poland and into Eastern Europe. But Dachau was important for another reason as well. It was the test bed where the Nazis tried to out some of their earliest theories about how to, how to make those kinds of camps work. Designed and managed early on by a psychopathic commandant named Ernst Eicke, the trademark roll calls, starvation, delicing, gas chambers, tattooing, and crematoria all began in Dachau. To go to Dachau was to uncover the beginning of where it all began. Munich, too, is the ideological homeland for Hitler and Nazism because Hitler may have been born in Austria, but he came to life in Munich. His putsch in 1923 and his eventual rise all drew from his immense popularity in the province of Bavaria. Setting up a camp outside of Munich was the most logical thing to do. Not surprisingly, there's very little left of the original camp. After the war, local residents wanted to tear it down and use it to build homes. That was stopped because the camp was needed for refugees, and it was again discussed in the early 1960s until a group of German Christian survivors demanded that whatever remained of the camp would be preserved. On the day that my so small group of three other rabbis went, 
we were scheduled to meet a class of German teens who were visiting Dachau. That morning I learned that all German school children go to the camps on day trips to learn about its horror. But the group that we met was unique. They had chosen to partake in a voluntary three-day seminar at Dachau, and we met them on day two. The beginning was awkward. You can imagine how intimidating it was for them. Foreigners, Jews, rabbis, all in English. But in most cases, when humans face one another, the walls that separate us melt, and real interaction begins to take hold. So we sat in a circle, and we began to ask each other questions. We asked them about their lives, their school, the effect of the refugees in Germany, what they know of the war, and the, and the destruction of Europe's Jews. We asked them if they had any sense of what their grandparents or great-grandparents may have done during the war. They asked us about Canada and why we came to Germany. Just before we ended our meeting, I asked them what they would remember most from our interaction. And one of the girls said, you are the first Jews that we have ever met in our lives which spoke two things to me. First, it reminded me that when Steven Spielberg was criticized for not using Jewish actors as extras during the filming of Schindler's List in Poland, at the news conference, Spielberg replied by saying he wanted to, but there were none left to hire. Hitler had killed them all off. The same is true for Bavaria. 1,200 years of history gone, vanished. But the other thing it teaches me is about the power of seeing. And I want to tell you what I told them that day. In the Torah reading, we hear of a long and painful estrangement of the brothers Jacob and Esau. But this morning, they are to meet. You might remember that years earlier, it was Jacob who tricked his father into giving him Esau's birthright. And from that moment on, Esau had pledged to kill his brother. And as news of Jacob's coming reaches Esau, he advances with 400 men in tow. And we can only assume at that moment that Esau will carry out his threat to murder Jacob. And on the night before this meeting, Jacob can't sleep. He is anxious and mortified that this might be his last night alive. But when they meet... Everything changes. And the questions that come from this story are many. Why, when he saw him, didn't Esau kill Jacob immediately? And why is it that as soon as Jacob sees Esau, he is no longer afraid? And a teacher of mine once offered a beautiful insight into the story. He explained that in the ancient world, they had many things that we have, but people didn't have mirrors. People would go for years, sometimes even decades, without seeing themselves. Now today we see ourselves hundreds of times a day, maybe some of you even thousands, reflected in mirrors at homes, in cars, selfies and pictures. But in the ancient world, people really had no idea what they looked like. But remember that Jacob and Esau were brothers, and they were twins, but not identical. So when they looked into the eyes of each other first, they saw a stranger. And then 
they saw a brother. And then they saw themselves. And this is the cure. It isn't true that we naturally love everybody. It isn't true that our first reaction to seeing someone different is for us to love them. If you think that's true, then you've never been to a playground. Because what happens when a new kid comes to a playground? Do the other kids turn around and say, Oh, look, a new child. Let us embrace him and share our toys. No, you know what they say, let's go get the new kid. But both Jacob and Esau had to, something to learn. And that is what we need to learn in order to heal ourselves. Which is not just to see what we feel. To see our hurts and the losses, but to have a vision of what we truly are in the eyes of ourselves and others. To see others as complete humans. With that in mind, it isn't a small thing that the Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve were intimate, that only then did they know one another. Because one of the most challenging things we all face is to accept that we truly don't know another person by what we see, by where they live, by what they do for a living, by what God they worship. To truly know someone is to meet them. I told those teens that if you walk in and out of a place like Dachau, without some kind of larger vision, without some larger picture of what the person next to you really is, then not only have you wasted your time, but because Dachau was actually a massive cemetery, you have also desecrated the memory of the people who died there. So I want to ask you something. Starting this morning, for the rest of your life, I want you to do one small thing. At least once a day, when you pass by someone on the sidewalk, on the elevator, in the hallway, on the bank line, in the checkout counter, stop and look them in the eye and smile. Because we need to remind ourselves of what we are actually seeing. It's the vision of a stranger, then a brother, and then yourself. Shabbat Shalom.